Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the XXLA Architects Podcast. It's such a thrill to be able to share with you a live recording of a panel discussion entitled In Great Company, the AWA Plus D's Legacy of Empowerment. The discussion features panelists and AWA Plus D members, Lise Bornstein, Weena Dows, Marisa Kurtzman, Brenda Levin, Kate Diamond, and Nina Briggs, and was moderated by yours truly, Audrey Sato. It was recorded on September 30th at WUHO, which is Woodbury University's gallery space on Hollywood Boulevard. Our event was held here in conjunction with Architects' exhibit, Now What? Advocacy, Activism, and Alliances in American Architecture Since 1968. Without further ado, let's dive right into the event. On behalf of the Association for Women in Architecture and Design, it is my greatest honor to welcome you to this panel today. Thank you so much for coming and supporting diversity and inclusion in our profession and evolving our culture. We're celebrating almost 100 years with our organization, and these women before you have proven that equity and inclusion are not challenges to be met, but they're actually core ways of being. And so I'm so excited to hear them speak. I'm just going to briefly try to keep them, my introductions very brief. Uh, to my left is Lise Bornstein, and Lise is a partner of KFA. She, um, their firm was awarded the AIA California Council Firm Award in 2016. I personally had the benefit of guidance from her this past year in her role as AWAF Scholarship Chair. And I can attest to her exceptional abilities as a mentor. She zeroes into the heart of any matter at hand and provides straightforward feedback to encourage and guide without dictating. After working with Lise, I can understand why KFA is known for having a great company culture. <laughs> to Lisa's left is Weena Dows. Weena graduated from UC Berkeley in 1950 and ran Weena Dows designs for over 60 years while being active in her community through AWA plus D, AWAF, and other organizations like LA Trade Tech. I have met her clients who said that they only want to work with female architects because of the lasting positive impression she made on them. Through her hard work and support of female colleagues, she has made the world I entered into a much better place. Next up is Marisa Kurtzman. She is an incoming partner at Frederick Fisher & Partners, where she has worked for the past 12 years. In addition to the leadership and creativity she's shown rising in her firm, she's extended her talents to the AWA plus D as co-chair and one of the founders of the Advocacy Committee, which is a relatively new facet of our organization. <laughs> Next is Brenda Levin. John Jurdy said of Brenda Levin, she taught everyone how to give life back to things that were, at first glance, hopelessly lifeless. It seems like Levin and Associates Architects worked on virtually every iconic building in Los Angeles, a list too long to read here, but one that includes the Bradbury Building, Griffith Observatory, 
Grand Central Market, Ford Theaters, and many others. Thanks for being here. And then next is Kate Diamond. Kate Diamond is a design principal in HDR's Los Angeles office, overseeing design for civic, science, and technology and academic projects. She previously held design principal roles at HMC, NBBJ, and RNL, taught at USC, and served as the first female president of the AIA LA. If that list doesn't already sound impressive, she co-founded Siegel, Scleric, and Diamond in 1985, which was one of the largest women-owned firms in the U.S., and co-headed Siegel Diamond Architects until 2001. Thank you, Kate. And last but not least is Nina Briggs. Nina is an award-winning educator who has taught architectural thinking to people of all ages. As the founding principal of The Fabric, she approaches design from an ethnographic point of view, bringing empathy to her work and teachings. She also serves as the archivist for AWA Plus D and spearheads WikiD efforts to write women into Wikipedia. As the local liaison to architects, for the Now What exhibit that we're sitting in today. Nina is the reason we're able to see this fantastic display. Thank you. So um, now that you've heard so many of their accomplishments, I'd love to turn it over the, to the panelists to introduce themselves with a fun tidbit or anecdote about yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Lise, why don't you start? Well, um, first, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I look down this table and I'm just like shocked and honored to be here. It's amazing. Um, these women have been my idols and mentors and um, I aspire to be a tenth of what they've done. So, And I'm getting choked up already, so <laughs> this is me. <laughs> um, I'm going to share a couple truths okay. that instead of, because I'm not that funny, so <laughs> um, I think like many women in this room and many people in this room, uh, we are bit by that architecture bug when we're really young. Uh, my first project was when I was six. It was the Death Star. Um, I, <laughs> my client was the Evil Galactic Empire, and we completed it on budget and on time. And I was very proud of that. Um, and I learned a couple of things that are truths that I believe recycle themselves, reinvent themselves, and get re-understood as I've grown up and into my career. And that is one, choose your client well. Um, I think um, a good client is your partner. They are your, um, your champion. The, the group with which that you will succeed and the people in your firm will succeed. Uh, so be careful and uh, open when you choose your client. And the second piece is, um, like Ikea, there's always going to be a few pieces left in that box. Always. There's like pieces <laughs> of the Death Star everywhere when I was done. Um, but nothing is perfect. No project is ever perfect. No drawing set is ever perfect. And I think as women, we think we have to be perfect. 
And um, I've heard that in so many different ways and going after jobs and meetings and everything. And you don't have to be perfect. You have to be willing to open your ears, listen, and problem solve. So those are my two re-evolving truths. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. This is Weena Dows. When I was a student at Berkeley, one day my girlfriend and I went to San Francisco and we came across a construction site. And I said, oh, this is Frank Lloyd Wright's new building. Let's go in. And she said, oh, it says keep out. And I said, oh, let's go in anyway. <laughs> so we went in, and he happened to be there doing a site visit. So I was in. I marched over, and I said, hello, I'm Weena. I'm a student across the Bay of Architecture. And he was very cordial and pleasant. And he said, are you going to get married? And I said, oh, probably. And he said, nope, you have to choose, architecture or marriage. I don't remember my response. I think I shut up at that point, because I thought, I bet I can do both. <laughs> <laughs> well, I graduated in June. I got married in July. I worked for others for four years, and then I had my 60-year career, and I have three children. So, ha-ha, Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> this is Marisa Kurtzman. Um, well, unlike uh, Lee's and the Death Star, I actually um, discovered architecture pretty late. Uh, in life, actually, I uh, studied art history in college and wanted to be a museum, museum curator. Um, and then I realized there were about five museum curator jobs in the entire world at any given time. So uh, the year I finished college, I was living in Boston, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, uh, looking to discover my career. I happened to live in uh, Cambridge, um, very near the Harvard campus. I believe that the former tenants of my apartment actually went to the Harvard Graduate School of Design because we got a lot of architecture-related mail for them. And one day in the spring, after sort of contemplating this for a few months, um, I came home and there was a big envelope in my mailbox from the Boston Society of Architecture, uh, and it was not addressed to me. It was addressed to the former tenant. But I decided to commit a felony <laughs> and open it anyway. And inside the envelope were a number of things, including a flyer for the GSD's uh, summer program called Career Discovery. I was looking to discover a career, so uh, I called my mother, right over there and I said you're not going to believe what just happened she said I think you should quit your job tomorrow and go do that immediately so thanks for the female support on that one and the rest is history so you know crime does pay it doesn't pay very well but it does pay so I'm thinking maybe you had my apartment <laughs> this is Brenda Levin. So I uh, grew up in the late 50s in Teaneck, New Jersey, five miles from the George Washington Bridge. And my life was going to be as an artist. I went to the Art Students League. I snuck into New York every weekend, changed my clothes on the bus to be in all black, still wearing all black, and uh, took art classes. And I went to Carnegie Mellon as an undergraduate. And, and looked you're in. Your mic. 
and looked in uh, to the architecture school and saw no women and promptly went back upstairs to graphic design. Fast forward many, many years later, I also ended up in Cambridge, Massachusetts and discovered that everybody's in some sort of graduate program. And so I explored the Boston Architectural Center, now college, which was a night school um, for practicing uh, people in other professions taught by practicing professionals. I did that for two years, had tremendous support, and then applied to the GSD and became one of the oldest students at GSD, graduating when I was 30. I met my future husband there, not in architecture, and he thought California was the place to come. We came to Los Angeles, and my very first job, just by walking down this very boulevard, knocking on doors, was with John Lautner. I had never heard of John Lautner. I had no idea who John Lautner was. Somebody just told me he was doing interesting things and that I ought to go see him. I got hired for $5 an hour, yes, with a master's degree, $5 an hour to build a model of Bob Hope's house in Palm Springs. And that was the very beginning of my career, John Laudner, who had letters from Frank Lloyd Wright in his desk, wrapped with a red ribbon, which he would take out every Friday and read us one. This is Kate Diamond. So I'm going to um, tie a series of important women, some of whom are sitting at this table, um, into the story. Um, my mother studied with Maholi Naj of the Bauhaus in World War II when women were not being encouraged to go to Harvard GSD um, with Gropius, but she was a silversmith, really a coppersmith, because in World War II you couldn't get any silver. Uh, and she was the one who, somewhere when I was about 10, thought that architecture would be an amazing career for me because I was good at math, was kind of pushy, and... Um, and opinionated, and good at art, and she thought it would combine the things. At the time, I think, she thought I was going to have a career that would be somewhat closer to what Weena had of working from home, having clients who adored me. Um, they'd wait for three months because they wait for Weena for months, um, and uh, because she was so amazing, and contractors who wanted to work with her and trusted her and were collaborative. And I actually took my mother with me um, to an AWA event held in the then a recently restored Wiltern. You were speaking, Weena was speaking, Margot Siegel was speaking. And I said, I'm not going to be Weena. And I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to be the competitive one who works 50 hours a week, et cetera. Um, after, so two other little minor pieces of my trajectory. The first is I ran away from Richard Nixon and my father in equal measure in 1970. <laughs> um, good decision. I can't run back now because I can't stand Bibi Netanyahu any more than I can stand POTUS. Um, so I did my architectural degree at the Technion, the Israel Institute of Technology. One of the interesting realities was that 50% of the student population were women. 
Uh, that didn't mean that women had equality in Israel, and it didn't mean that there were superstar, rock star art, uh, women architects in Israel. But as a student, there wasn't the kind of pushback. I came back to the United States in 1979 after having served as an architect in the Israeli Air Force. And number one is my first clients were all Israeli Air Force generals, and after that, nobody impresses me. <laughs> Even judges that are appointed for life to the district court. <laughs> Flyboys sit closer to the hand of God than they do. So... Uh, essentially, I came back and I almost left architecture. Frankly, I started a PhD in, in psychology because I didn't like drafting and I didn't, um, the firm I was with had never hired a graduate woodman um, for any position. And so it was kind of a slightly weird place. And so AWA and Ginger Tansman, who's not here today, but who was a really big influence, told me it was time to leave, and I went into partnership with Margot after that. I kind of feel like my mother chose for me to be an architect the first time. When I left um, UCLA, and behind me are a bunch of incompletes that I suspect have turned into Fs, um, I chose to go back to architecture the second time myself, and I haven't regretted it. So, you did the right thing. I did the right thing. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. <laughs> this is Nina Briggs. Well, first, I'm so honored to be sitting here on this panel with all of you. I've admired and respected and loved you for many years. Um, and I, after I tell my story, I just want to talk a little bit about the exhibit. Is, sure. that, is that okay? Yep. So I wasn't supposed to be an architect. I was supposed to be a prima ballerina. I was groomed from the age of three um, to be in ballet, and that was my parents' uh, dream for me, um, with which I complied. Um, but my father um, died suddenly um, when I was seven, and uh, he, on his deathbed, literally, in the hospital, he said to me, you have to be an architect. No pressure. <laughs> um, and then he went on talking about Paul Williams. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he expressed to me his frustration in not being able to complete his career and basically told me I had to finish what he he was unable to finish. So there you go. What are you going to do? <laughs> He'd be proud of you. Thank you. So um, uh, I just want to speak to you a little bit about this exhibit because it's something I'm very excited about. Architects uh, and the curators of the exhibit are Lori Brown, Andrea Merritt, Sarah Rafson, and Roberta Washington. And they called me and asked um, if I knew of a place that they could uh, have this traveling exhibit. It started at Pratt in Brooklyn. Uh, then, obviously, here it's in L.A. And from here it goes to the CCA in San Francisco, then on to Montreal and other places. So um, the subject of the exhibit is very close to my heart. 
advocacy, activism, and alliances in American architecture since 1968. And as you can see, it's a timeline, but the timeline has gaps in it. So the purpose of the exhibit is for everyone to actually participate in filling the gaps, uh, to add names or movements or campaigns or anything that falls in the line of advocacy, activism, or alliances. The table that you see over there was designed by a brilliant uh, industrial designer. Um, and if you see the colored cards on the table, they are embossed with uh, a theme. And so you choose your theme and then write on the card and put it wherever you think it should go on the timeline. Now, I know it's a lot to read, and nobody can read all of this in their first visit to the exhibit, but you can see all of these papers and articles uh, on the architect's website and read them at your leisure. Um, but the point is, hopefully, that each city that the exhibition visits, more alliances are formed. And what we want to do here in Los Angeles is uh, for the last uh, month and for the duration of the exhibit, we've been inviting all of the A and D organizations to hold their meetings here or panel discussions or whatever kinds of events and to include in their agenda uh, how we can all come together in Los Angeles around one or two advocacy items. Uh, the architecture lobby is working with me and we will collect this data um, because we discovered that there is nothing that tells us how many uh, people are working in Los Angeles in the built environment. Of course, the AIA has data on who the licensed architects are, but what we've discovered is that there are so many other people working in the built environment who may be licensed architects, who may not be licensed architects, who may be structural engineers like Koji, who may be planners like Stephanie, uh, people educated or trained in architecture but have chosen a different path but are no less effective uh, and influential on our environment here. We want that data. We have uh, educators and scholars and writers and historians and the list goes on, all kinds of designers. And sometimes those allied professionals are left out of the conversation when it comes to the experts of the built environment. And they are experts as well. I contend that they are the glue of the design community. So with Architecture Lobby, we will be calling on all of you at some point to add your demographic to this database. And our goal is to come together as one ginormous coalition so that we can leverage our power to affect change, to influence policy. Um, to not be subject to uh, 
the powers that be that force us to do the things that we don't necessarily want to do as designers of the built environment. So we really do believe that with these numbers, we actually can uh, be one giant advocacy group. So please make sure before you leave that you sign in uh, on the sign-in sheet. And if you don't mind, I will be hunting you down. <laughs> <laughs> right. The gallery is going to be open till 6 today, so we'll have time after the event for you to look around and add your, um, your piece of information to the walls. Um, so I want to get started talk, asking uh, the panel some questions. Uh, the first one, I would like to hear about a pivotal moment in your career that was a direct result from the actions of someone else. Because I think we can all say here on the panel that we all rely on each other a lot for different reasons. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a whole network and a, a, a village that really builds us up. Let's start. So I would say pivot, two pivotal moments. This is Brenda Levin. Probably well more. But one was being at the Boston Architectural Center where... Um, I was really testing my interest and abilities in architecture and had two practicing professionals, they happened to work at Ben Thompson's office in, in Cambridge, who encouraged me and encouraged me to keep going and then to encourage me to leave BAC where I was comfortable and where I was working and paying off some student loans from undergraduate uh, to apply to graduate school and apply for loans and fellowships there. So that was really a pivotal moment. If that had not gone well, I probably would have walked away and never pursued uh, a higher ed degree. Uh, the second was meeting Wayne Ratkovich, uh, who was a developer, but a new developer. He had just left uh, being a broker at Cowell Banker. And he was starting out and bought an old building called the Oviat Building. And I had been working for a firm that uh, he knew the principal of. And he, they gave me that project. And when I decided to start my own firm in 1980, he asked me to continue and work with him. And that led to five projects consecutively. Wayne referred to me as his lady architect. Okay. So lots of times we get, get described as woman architect, where we're always the adjective and we're not the noun. And I would say that one of our very strong points of moving forward from where we are at this moment in time is to make sure that we are always referred to whatever, planner, architect, engineer, without the adjective woman in front of it as the defining factor. So I'm going to debate you. Okay. <laughs> Good. This is Kate Diamond. And it's a debate I had with Julie Eisenberg maybe 30 years ago at the first Julia Morgan's colloquium. And it becomes the question of whether we're there yet. I, ultimately... I didn't say we were there. I said we need to work towards that. <laughs> yes. Well, then I, we might agree more than, than... But the problem has also been that we have been erased from her story. 
that we think that Julia Morgan was the only woman practicing at the time in California. She wasn't. There were several dozen women architects practicing. But because the work they were doing was smaller, residential, they didn't make it into the traditional architectural history. And therefore, when I came along in 1979-80 and was here in Los Angeles trying to become part of architecture, I found that um, we were erased and that it seemed a surprise still that a woman would show up and be, you know, I remember a six foot four young man who worked for me, uh, who was probably the same age as I was. Uh, and when I showed up at the job site, uh, some employer, uh, some subcontractor said, sweetheart, whatever. And he said, you know, if you do that, I'm going to get my head handed to me. <laughs> Don't you dare call her sweetheart. She's my boss. And so, <laughs> We've, uh, we still need to be getting together and creating a space for ourselves and creating room for the recognition and growing it. I had thought that by now it would be an accepted fact. But I have to tell you um, both the good and the bad of a couple of pivotal moments uh, in my career. I had um, my own practice with two women partners in Norma Sklarik and Margot Siegel. And after they both retired, I was continuing. I was winning some nice work. The air traffic control tower put me in an exciting place and I was getting some amazing projects. But every time it was over $10 million, they would tell me I needed to partner with an executive architect. And let me tell you, I uh, don't like partnering with executive architects who don't know how to detail my buildings and who make a mess of things. And so I wasn't finding the right partner. I wasn't growing the capability in the firm. And I really love large, complex, crazy projects. And so I got out of... Siegel Diamond, and I went to work for larger established practices. In every one of them, including HDR Today, I was the first woman design principal they'd ever had. I was the first woman design principal that RNL ever had. I was the first woman. I, I thought when I looked at the MBBJ website, I saw all these women principal design principles listed. I didn't know they were all interior architecture design principles. When you're designing high-rises and you're sitting in the room with developers or judges or whatever, you're telling them to trust you with the largest um, financial investment they have. And a woman's voice is really hard in those circumstances. I have reasonable command presence, and I use it, and it was effective. It also got me into trouble in every one of those practices um, where people said I was bitchy, I was too hard on staff, I was too demanding, all kinds of things that they didn't say about other male design principles. So some days I feel the scars, and other days, frankly, in my present position, I feel empowered. But 
there were men who gave me a really hard time, and there were sometimes women who did. Um, and then there were women in AWA and other places who told me that sometimes it's better to just move on and find the next right place. And its resiliency is a really important characteristic. Whether you're running your own practice and you're in the middle of a recession um, or other pieces, resiliency, picking yourself up and getting back on the damn horse is a good idea. <laughs> I had a couple of uh, minor more snap out of it kind of moments. This is Lise um, Bornstein. I come from a, actually the softer side. I've had to learn how to find my voice, find my grounding, and learn to um, learn to be able to move forward and not get in my own way. And my first snap out of it was uh, a crit in college, and um, I simpered and giggled my way through my crit, like a lot of women in my class did. And I had a critic come afterwards, and he said to me, you have a great project. I couldn't see it at all, because I couldn't get past the way you delivered your project. Um, that sucked, <laughs> by the way. And he was right. And uh, so that was my first snap out of it. My next was when I was going to interviews, um, I had to get out of thinking that everybody would come to my door because I was like, hey, I graduated. They should all be knowing. Anyways, but I went and interviewed at a place that was looking for somebody who detailed, and it was this big sports complex in, uh, firm. And we interviewed, and then he said, um, you know, I'm not going to hire you today. And Oh, God, you know. And he said, and this is why. He said, you are clearly more inclined towards a design side. This is, this is where you're skill set is and you don't belong in this job you belong you need to look for something that fits you and this isn't a right fit and that was the first time I had kind of started to think about what does a right fit mean and what what do I want to do I'm not just an architect I'm going to be me as an architect um, and then uh, there was another time uh, Barbara Fleming I had the wonderful fortune of landing at KFA with Barbara Fleming and um, Wade Killifer. And uh, there was a time when I was sick and I didn't know I had choices because I was just going with the river. You know, the doctors say this and you go, okay, I'm going to go this way. And I had a, I had some bad news and she came to the hospital within an hour. I had texted somebody in my office and she was, she must've dropped everything. And she came and she sat down and I, I had been in, just a backstory, I had been in there for about seven weeks at that point. I didn't know I had choices. And she came and she sat down with a blank piece of paper, notebook actually, pencil, and she said, okay, what are we going to do? And that was the first time that I thought, oh, wait, wait, I have choices in this and I can start shoving my oar in the water and start guiding my direction. And... That was a big moment that I took with me to back to the office when I got out. And that has helped me get out of my own way, um, be able to support people that I think are incredible, um, and kind of move forward. Oh, and then when you mentioned uh, Julia Morgan, Zaha was the moment for me. In my class, she was the first woman we studied who was an architect. And I went, wow, there's another architect out there who's a woman. <laughs>
This is Weena Dows. I, I did primarily single family, and I think it's quite different from a big office doing skyscrapers. But one day I got a phone call from a contractor, and he says, the stairs don't work. <laughs> and I, I think that was one of my fears, that the stairs wouldn't be designed <laughs> properly. So I said, I'll be right out. And I went to the job site, and we got our tapes and all out. And turned out the stairs were a quarter inch off in the whole flight. And that's within code. And he looked at me, and he said, oops. <laughs> he, I became more self-confident from that incident. And he became the contractor that asked for me every time that there was a design opportunity. <laughs> I mean, I've been very, very lucky to have had tremendous support from many, many sources throughout my... This is Marisa uh, Kurtzman. My life, my education, my uh, career. Of course, you don't remember those. You remember the bad ones. <laughs> um, at my first job... Uh, Shortly after I got out of that career discovery program in Boston, I, I moved to New York and I was working at Polshek Partnership, which is now ENIAD. Um, one of my bosses, um, who actually was a pretty nice guy 50% of the time, um, <laughs> was a very mercurial person. He actually was an actor on the side, which says a lot. Anyway, um, I basically, having had no architectural training whatsoever, I was actually hired to write. Um, and I'm still one of those few rare architects that likes to write. Um, so I was writing um, some pre-design reports for him and I submitted a draft. I went to lunch and I came back and on my desk was a post-it. And I don't remember the specifics of what the post-it said, but I do remember there was a lot of swearing on this post-it. I was 23, and this was my first job. I was terrified. So I went upstairs to, you know, take what was coming to me. And by then, of course, you know, he'd had a cookie or, you know, he, the, the weather had shifted and he was, in his, he was, you know, back to being Dr. Jekyll, so that was fine. And, you know, whatever was wrong was relatively fixable. You know, some notes, go fix them. And I went from being terrified to being so angry. And I went back to my desk very quietly, took out my own post-it note and said, you will never treat people like this in your career. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Nina, you want to add anything on your career? Well, I have a lot of stories like Weena. This is Nina Briggs. Um, but uh, I think one that it's, it's very different from all of yours. I, I started teaching 20 years ago. And uh, at this first university where I was teaching, um, I was teaching six classes in the department. So they were relying on me heavily for that. And um, I had a baby. And uh, the baby was six weeks old, and uh, the chair of the department, my boss, called me because uh, I told him it, the baby was born in August. Then this, the September started the semester, and uh, he got a substitute teacher for me for this first few weeks. 
And so uh, those few weeks passed, and he called me up, and he goes, uh, you know, you got to get back here and teach these classes. This, this, these substitutes can't teach your classes for you. And I burst into tears, and I was like, I can't leave my baby. And he said, well, just bring her. <laughs> and it was, it was a revelation because I, in that six-week period when you become a mother, you never really know what kind of mother you're going to be. All these things kick in. And all my friends had no problem uh, having their babies in daycare or had family to take care of their babies. I didn't have that and I didn't want to do that so I felt really stuck and I wanted to I had the practice I had the husband the baby the teaching I just I was just lost and so he said you know there's a there's a room next to the studio where you teach it's a storage room and then next to that room there's a bathroom he said I will have it cleaned out I'll paint it I'll clean out the bathroom um, he says, why don't you send somebody over, bring a crib and a sofa or whatever else you want in the room, and we'll fix it up for you. How's that? And I was just Damn like... Damn good. Yeah. I, I was just bawling. Because I, I, I'd never even... I didn't know I had choices. I mean, I, I've never even heard of that even happening, right? Um, and he arranged for a nanny to be in this room that he fixed up so because I was nursing um, he got me a little refrigerator with a freezer because he knew I was freezing milk I mean it was like Jesus <laughs> <laughs> but he made my life possible um, and that meant so much to me because I didn't know how I was going to juggle all of that but I knew that I wanted all those pieces in my life and I was completely panicked as to how am I going to do this and he just solved the whole problem. Wasn't that wonderful? wonderful. Dare we ask who this hero is? <laughs> His name is Joe Lewis. Uh, wow. wow. <laughs> hmm? Joe, uh, Joe Lewis? Yeah. No, no, not <laughs> <laughs> Do you know Joe? Oh, so what university? This was at Cal State Northridge in 1998. Wow. wow. Joe Lewis. Okay, a moment of silence for cheers. Yeah. So I had, it's so interesting because the, the reason I started my firm. This is Brenda Levin. Was because I got pregnant and I was going to have this baby. And I knew that if I wanted to continue in architecture, I was not going to find someone like you found uh, to support me that way. So I opened a little, you know, one-room office with a futon in it and a crib and hired one USC student, Allison Wright, who I'm still good friends with this day, and uh, brought him to the office. Now, I had the advantage that my husband had an office right across the hall. So when I had to be on a phone call and he was screaming, I could send him over there. But not surprisingly, this child was my responsibility. And I had to figure it out. And so I started my own firm. Never intended to start my own firm. Just happened. So I gave way to it. I went, this is what I got to do. 
holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now that we've kind of looked outside of ourselves, I, I think that you're all forming these cultures around yourselves based on your experiences and also the guiding principles that are core to who you are. And so I'd love to hear you talk about a, a formative principle that's kept with you throughout your design and your, uh, your career development and, and talk about how that influences the culture you're shaping around you, if it does, if you have the same expectations for others that you have of yourself or not. Emotional intelligence. This is Nina Briggs. It's my favorite thing, and I think that I'm constantly working on building up my EQ, and it is what gives me the resiliency that I need when I get knocked down. It's my whole mantra. So I would say that my EQ is not very good. This is Kate Diamond. <laughs> Don't say that. I would. I would say that women, that whatever gender we're in, there is a bell curve from more masculine to more feminine in both male populations and female populations, and we stereotype certain types of personalities and other pieces. I have pursued a relatively traditional, ambitious, uh, you know, if I could have figured out how to win a goddamn Pritzker Award, I would have been really happy. I don't think I had the right sets of opportunities and probably didn't have the talent, but I have been hard pushed and hard driving on myself and relatively hard driving on my teams. I have high expectations and I want to do work that would be recognized by my peers wherever they, what, without having a women uh, in architecture title attached to it. When we walk away from a building, it's a building. And um, I work hard on improving my EQ, mostly because it's a good strategy to make my life calmer, um, but it's hard work for me. Uh, it's easier for me to be focused on um, architecture and on social equity, uh, designing cities and places for women, for children, for people with disabilities. I'm presently working on an amazing juvenile justice facility in Omaha that is bringing the courts and the, um, the juvenile detention and probation and everybody together in the hopes that we can deliver restorative justice and do better things. So, the activism that was true of, of the 60s, and I know David and, and kind of the way he felt about the world, and I still do. Sustainability is a driving part of my life, and I'm doing a number of net zero energy, hopefully living building challenge um, kinds of projects. So I'm still as passionate about architecture as architecture as I was when I was 16 and started architecture school. And I don't do very well at, at being nice. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you're too hard on yourself. You're totally too hard on yourself. This is Brenda Levin. I mean, I'm really fortunate because when I came to Los Angeles, Kate, you you were here in 79, so I came in 76, but I started my firm in 80, but I knew you. We often got uh, confused with each other, (laughs) that I would be called Kate, she would be called Brenda, because how could there be two women architects in Los Angeles. I took it always as a compliment. I, I did as well. And, um, and, and your partners, Norma and Margot, I mean, were really inspirational for me. Um, I think as, because I started my own firm so early in my career, I never worked for a lot of firms. So my goal was always to have a firm that spawned uh, other firms and particularly other uh, women-owned firms, because I felt so fortunate in the experiences that I had that the relationship with first Wayne Ratkovich and then Ira Yellen in terms of how it propelled propelled my career, that I really felt like I had a responsibility to make sure that other women had that. And I am proud to say that I have spawned probably five individual firms and then many women in other firms. And to me, uh, whatever success I've had is shared with all of those and all of the employees who have passed through my uh, office with whom I still maintain significant relationships. So for me, I hope that I've created a family uh, of um, alums of my little firm. This is Marisa Kurtzman. I would say that um, I'm still, you know, figuring it all out. But um, I am every day amazed uh, at how architecture is and must be a team sport. Um, You know, imagine most of the people in this room have read The Fountainhead and the idea of Howard Roark as this kind of singular figure doing it all, being it all, Superman architect. I maybe that applied once to the profession. I believe it no longer does. Um, and I know enough to know that I don't know hardly much. And everybody who I work with contributes. Um, and I help them. They help me. I, I just feel that um, this is the future of what we do. Uh, the idea that architecture is inherently collaborative and A huge part of that is also collaborating with our clients. Um, I think sort of leading to my second idea about, um, which is that I love stories and I think that architecture should always tell stories. And I got into architecture because I was very interested in the idea of buildings that tell stories and space that tells a story. So in what I do, um, which is uh, I I lead um, my office's um, visioning, programming, and planning efforts. Um, I talk to my clients. I I try to understand who they are as um, an institution. I really try to understand who they are as their identity, their very unique identity, and what makes them tick. And then, because I'm also a linguist, I like to translate that. So translating these very abstract ideas into something concrete um, that can be used as the outline of the parameters that which design will carry forward uh, is really uh, an important contribution, uh, no more nor less than the person who will take my ideas and work with me to potentially carry it forward into the design phase. I guess I'm just going to put in a little plug for AWA. This is Weena Downs. 
When you work alone, it's really great to have a group where you have colleagues that you can call and say, have you ever used this material for this pro- for this uh, purpose? Or what do you think about this? And I am so grateful I discovered AWA. I discovered it some years ago when there was a conference, I think out at Cal State Pomona, maybe. And there was a choice of what you went to. There were multiple things going on. And I chose this lecture by a structural engineer. And in walks this babe in high heels and black tight pants and a fuzzy black top. And she was the structural engineer. And I thought, I'm in the right place. (laughs) I'm going to get a top like that now. (laughs) That sounds awesome. This is Lise Bornstein. I would say I I didn't know I had core values, I guess. I mean, I I guess I did, but... um, until uh, Barbara and Wade asked me to go to lunch with them. This was about three years ago. And they said, um, we are thinking of retiring, and we would like to have you be a partner. And I said, oh, my God, wait, what? <laughs> because I had never, ever in my um, time as an architect anywhere thought or even had the ambition of being a partner. That wasn't on my list, my bucket list. But um, I immediately said yes, because you always say yes. (laughs) Um, And I realized why that was so important to me was because I wanted our office to continue forward. The culture of our office um, allowed me to come out of my shell and find my voice. I had been in a big corporate firm and was lost, basically. Um, and when I came to KFA, I was able to find my voice and I wanted that place to be there to encourage and grow an entirely new generation of, um, smart architects. And that's what I realized I wanted to be part of my life. Um, another piece was that, um, in, in kind of stepping into those shoes and starting to say, okay, I, I actually have an idea of uh, an opinion, um, that social um, or humanistic look at architecture was something else that I wanted to be an advocate for. Uh, we do a lot of affordable housing, but we also do a lot of market rate housing. Basically, we house people in many different ways. And how do you put the human in the spaces that you are doing? That is my... Um, sword that I fall on (laughs) all the time and it is one of the few things that I will actually argue about (laughs) with other people because I'm not an arguer but that is something that I've been able to um, encourage in our uh, office because I am now in the position that I am in so it's been fun awesome (laughs) well uh, this is the last question I'll ask before uh, we open it up to the audience for questions Um, Given the title of the exhibit, Now What?, could you please each share with the audience something that inspires you or something they can do in action or a person or a book that inspires you, something they can take with them? I would give a suggestion based on my experience. This is Weena Dow. And despite the fact that Lise thinks we don't have to be perfect, which I agree, (laughs) I agree with, but I think... 
women especially need to be super accurate and their plans need to be well-defined. And uh, I think I got a lot of my jobs because my plans were good. And I, I remember one time a contractor called me and he said, Weena, I'm working on a set of plans. I wish you'd done them. Apparently they were incomplete and inaccurate and he was going nuts. So I think it's really important to be super accurate. Check it and recheck it. And I also recommend marriage counseling. <laughs> and, and this is to help you deal with clients. I, I did both. <laughs> Strong advice. <laughs> so when I was um, with HMC, this is Kate. Diamond. We had a uh, office manager who actually cared about diversity, and he organized a conversation around Lean In. He had read the book, he had seen some of the interviews, and he wanted to engage that conversation in the office. And while we were sitting in our main conference room talking, uh, one of the women project architects, who at the time was labeled a project coordinator, I think, uh, said, I have taken six months off with each of my children, and I feel like my career is behind, and that I'm actually doing the job of a project architect, but I don't seem to be getting that recognition. And I was deeply embarrassed because she was working on my projects and I said to her, you're absolutely right. Um, I rely on you completely. I know that while you may go home to pick up your kid from daycare at the right time, you then work until midnight because I get emails from you at midnight and you are 100% doing all those things. I will be your advocate and I will get you that promotion within, the, it'll probably take me three months because that's the time frame in larger practices to get that, but I will get it for you. So I would say be honest with yourself in evaluating the value you are giving in the context of what you're doing. Don't exaggerate your value but also do not underestimate your value. And if you believe that you're not getting the recognition, it can be subliminal, unintentional discrimination. It can be because you've been there for a long time and you haven't raised your voice and asked for anything. It can be an opportunity to engage in a discussion about where you want to go with your career and how you want to get there you need to ask for it. When I wanted to teach, I went and sat on design juries in three or four different uh, universities here and I told every dean, I wanna teach. It took me 
you know, nine months before people were making me offers and I said no to that one and no to that one. And then I said that one's fine because they, they, they said everyone starts with first year and I said I haven't got a clue how to teach an 18-year-old anything. And so I, I haven't thought about the pedagogy of architecture. I really want something that's closer to interns that I have worked with and I can help them more and I think I would add more value. So they finally said, okay, how's third year sound for you? And I said, fine. And so actually the then dean said to me, well, everyone does. And I said something like, you know, if Norman Foster walked in the door, you wouldn't tell him. When you decide I'm worth it, call me back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, have confidence in the value you offer. Um, have a belief that your voice is as strong and as valuable as anyone else's. And do those things. Then back it up with proof. Nothing like proof to live through it. So I'm going to build on what Kate said because I'm totally in 100% agreement. Um, this is Brenda Levin. I think one of the most important things is to keep learning. Um, I've had the good for fortune of working on many different building types, many within the context of historic preservation or adaptive reuse, but theaters, restaurants, housing, higher ed, uh, elementary school, high school, science buildings, gyms, all different um, programs. And I think I learned something from every single one of those projects. And even though there were some similarities in how I approached them, um, I'm totally in agreement with uh, Marissa here in terms of how you um, engage your client and how you make sure that you are a good listener as well as a good presenter. And so communication skills are absolutely critical, and I had some really good role models who I paid enormous attention to to learn how to do it and to learn how to make public presentations, to stand up before city council or any kind of government body to make uh, my point heard and to tell a story, because telling a story is what it's all about. Um, I do think that... Um, you have to speak truth to power, whether the power is your boss or whether it's a elected official or whether it's your partner in your firm. Uh, you have to stand up and speak out. And as Kate said, um, you have to back it up with your skill set, your talent, your collaborative spirit. I think what we all have going for us right now is this whole notion of design thinking, that there is a common language now about collaboration. And clearly, as architects, we collaborate in the most fundamental way. Um, and since that language is translating itself into all forms of government and social sectors and nonprofit sectors, we need to help um, those folks understand how to do it. And we can be leaders. So most importantly, though, we need to help each other. And AWA has been a great support and will continue to be. And we all need to think about how we can provide support uh, to our friends, colleagues, and uh, mentors. This is Marisa Kurtzman. Well, 
my involvement with the AWA or my real active involvement with the AWA um, occurred for through a funny sequence of events. Um, I got my license on November 7th, 2016. On November 8th, 2016, we had an election. Um, you all know the outcome. On November 9th, the AIA came out and made a statement essentially saying it was a, it was a boilerplate statement congratulating the new president and um, expressing the AIA's willingness to collaborate uh, on infrastructure projects uh, that, the in, that the administration had um, proposed. And, you know, I was thinking about, a lot about that. Uh, and I said, well, so wait a minute. Does that mean that as an architect, I'm supposed to be collaborating on building a wall on our border or a pipeline? Um, that is absolutely against the core of who I am. Um, so in the wake of all of that, it, you know, it just being uh, an activist and a cit good citizen was so inherently tied up in also being an architect. Um, it happened that I was able to get more involved with the AWA shortly thereafter. And um, my co-chair and I founded the advocacy committee, which we meet monthly. Um, we're still, you know, trying to figure out our specifics, but we're, we really focus on education around three core issues. Um, equity in the design workplace, uh, environmental resilience, and um, design and community. Uh, we have a number of events coming up. Um, on October uh, 18th, I believe, we're having a, a lecture by a colleague of mine about um, gender-inclusive restroom design. You can all go to that. Um, and then I believe on November 6th, we're having our uh, semi-annual book club where we'll be reading several of the um, Parlor Guides for, for Equitable Practice by Justine Clark. Um, and then speaking about November 6th, uh, I'll just leave a tagline that I saw on Facebook uh, recently in the, in, the, in the wake of the events of this past week that uh, there's a women's march on November 6th. It takes place at your polling station. <laughs> Your Facebook is showing the same thing as my Facebook. <laughs> this is Lise Bornstein. Then I'm going to close because actually Weena is on, uh, I'm on the board with Weena and I see Koji. Um, AWA was a huge um, factor in my life and I would say part of it is engage in things that you love. Wade, my boss, um, kept trying to get me to join uh like some downtown LA business thing and I went and it was just, I was a fish out of water and I kept doing things that he suggested because I wanted to get ahead and they were all not geared for me <laughs> because we're very, very different people. And I, um, he, uh, and he's going to hate this that I said this, but um, he totally poo-pooed aw oh no you know that's there are no clients at awa those are you know but i joined it and i found that it helped me develop my project management skills i got to do my own projects i figured out with the help and guidance of an incredible board how to write grants how to get a fellowship going how to engage my peers um, to create committees and juries and review portfolio not, not just not just little things. These are things that help me engage in a profession that I love uh, with people that I love. And so um, join something that you really love and do a good job. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, and then I just want to add one. Um, yeah. Push a woman forward. This is Nina Briggs. Uh, whenever you have the power, the opportunity, the the impetus, push a woman forward. There are two people in this room who do this unapologetically, to whom I'm very grateful, and it's Ingela Walrus Ritter and Sarah Lorenzen. They unapologetically push women forward on a daily basis. I love that about you. <laughs> yes, and actually, I, what I was going to say was very related to that. Um, we are currently in Wuho Gallery, which is Woodbury University's gallery space. And so I just want to congratulate all of you in the audience for having made a difference today by your donation to come to this event because that supports exhibits like this and events and a multitude of talks and panels and meetings that are happening in this space while this exhibit's up. So thank you very much. Um, at this time, I'd love to open it up to the audience if there are any questions that you might have for our panel. If not, I'll ask an or you want to ask something? You go first. Are you sure? Okay. Um, well, we talked a little, we touched a little bit on it earlier. And um, one thing I've been thinking about is that in architecture, our talents are really subjectively judged. There, there aren't a lot of objective measures to, to measure like how good you are at a design in some cases. Um, I was wondering how you've all dealt with this sort of judgment and, and trying to gain trust and confidence in yourself and from others. If you have any tidbits to help demystify that for some of us. So if I... This is Kate Diamond. ...could share um, my ex-partner and hero, Norma Sklarek, who was the first woman black fellow and the first, uh, I think, African-American, uh, excuse me, she was the first African-American woman uh, fellow, and she was the first, I think, registered African-American architect. And she was head of production at Gruen, and then for about three years, we were partners at Siegel Sklarek Diamond, which actually turned out not to be her strength because we were asking her to do... Um, kind of production oversight on small type five buildings when she was used to doing large airports and type one buildings. And it was an unrealistic piece. And we fought like mad. And then we went back to being dear friends. And she was quite wonderful. She told me that when she graduated from school, she had hoped to be a designer. That in school, uh, she went to Columbia during World War II when they didn't have enough men to fill the seats, so they let women and even minority women in. Um, when she graduated, uh, the men were coming back from the war, and it was very hard. Uh, she actually took the civil service exam, got the top grade on the civil service exam in New York City for an architecture position, and they refused to hire her, so they sat with a position open for three and a half years before they got desperate because they couldn't jump over her in civil service. You must go in the order. Uh, and they, by that point in time, she had a job, so they got out of it. 
She said that it was clear to her that she could never succeed as a designer because the world was too subjective. But when she could deliver construction documents to the building department that came back with maybe one or two corrections, talk about checking and rechecking, suddenly her value was proven. Uh, women in larger practice are doing very well in managing principal roles and in project architect roles and um, places where there are, in fact, very real proof. Somebody who can deliver a project that stays within budget and makes profit is a value to every architectural practice there is, and if you avoid risk and you do that. So it's really in the world of design that the subjectivity becomes a key part of your evaluation. And you get awards and you do things that um, tell people that in situations where your name wasn't on it, um, you were winning. You find ways to tell good stories that convince clients to let you um, not leave too much on the table when you're done, um, that you bring clients with you and you build that trust to take them further than they ever imagined. It is a very hard slog. And I think it will be for a while. Um, if I were a young woman architect, I'd go find women who believed in women and work for them. Uh, I would not work in places where I didn't get the opportunities. Uh, on the coasts, the door is further open. I don't see women in the boardroom, and I don't see women as design principles all over the place. But for those first 15 years of your practice, go out there and blow everybody's mind with great design, and then hopefully by the time you get there waiting for them to offer you a partnership or offer you um, a place at the design table, you'll have the proof. Anyone else want to add to that? This is Marisa Kurtzman. I think just to follow up on what Kate mentioned, you know, I think that architecture school doesn't do the profession a lot of favors in the sense that um, everybody leaves architecture school thinking they are the greatest designer ever and that that's the only way that you're really going to succeed in the profession. And... Um, I myself um, have experienced that, I mean, of course, design is critical, but no less critical is everything else that goes into the making of a building. And um, there are so many paths forward uh, that you can follow. And in fact, I have very vivid memory at some point when um, it was around 2008, we were in the middle of a recession and people were getting off, laid off left and right. I was really frightened and I said to a friend, um, I just, you know, I just feel like I'm just one of, you know, 25 designers. What am I going to do? I feel so totally dispensable. And he said to me, well, I guess you're going to have to find a way to make yourself indispensable. And um, that really struck a chord with me. And, and shortly thereafter, I marched myself into my boss's office and said, you know, all this marketing that you do and going to get work, I think I can do that. I can get in front of people and I can hold it together. Um, so I started doing that. I figured if I could help make it rain, then they weren't going to fire me. Um, I still do that. Uh, and, um, you know, I think also just my art history background and my research background, I love finding out about people. 
I, as my career has evolved, I'm, I'm actually less interested in the details, although I have profound respect for the people who do them. But I love that big picture. And if I can go to the opening of a building that I worked on, you know, briefly five years later and see that my ideas and my concept that we helped put together with my client and my team have stuck, then I feel like I've done my job. So look for other ways. I think, you know, you mentioned that you got to find the way that architecture is going to work for you. This is Brenda Levin. I think it's important to find something outside of your workplace that in which you can contribute. So whatever, whatever that is, it's a nonprofit organization, it's your kid's school, it's uh, the local neighborhood park, it's uh, whatever, whatever it is, uh, it's a mechanism for you to think beyond your, your profession uh, in your workplace and how to use your profession in society. And so much of architecture is really about making society better, right? I mean, that's what we all hope to do. Um, but sometimes it takes getting outside of your workplace to have that experience. And I did it early in my career with homelessness and, and women, uh, women homeless, women who were homeless. And to this day, it's probably one of the things that I am most proud of with all the other projects that I've done and the successes that I've had, um, step outside the profession a little bit and then use it to do something really important. Um, this is for um, Kate and maybe also Lise. Uh, Kate, you talked about um, as design principal and also, well, as design principal in the corporate firms you're with, uh, being successful and being assertive, but also being labeled in, in ways that are not flattering and not helpful. Um, what skills do you use to navigate through that kind of environment? Um, Lise, you've had a, a more of a, a, a nurturing environment, but still have had challenges navigating as a design partner. So um, if you can all talk about the skills that you need that we can learn from because you've navigated so successfully. This is Kate Diamond. So first of all, I give the impression of having navigated successfully. There were choppy waters and problems along the way. Um, there were times when it was clear that while I wasn't going to get fired, that my life was not going to be good in places that I was at and that it was time for me to transition. And I didn't really initiate those points. I um, recovered and uh, went out and found the next place and used my skill sets to uh, try to find the right place. And I think I'm in the right place where people um, have the value that will make that possible. I will say Andrea Rawlings worked first for Brenda, then came to work for me, then went back to work for Brenda. And I frequently quote her because she said to me uh, with regard to one particular client, you've used logic, you've used cajoling, you've used everything. It's time for you to tell him that he's so tall and so handsome and that it was really his idea. Um, <laughs> And 
I think that, that another piece of wisdom that I learned kind of painfully at NBBJ, the then CEO took me out to lunch and said, Kate, we've thrown some really difficult clients at you, and they are really different in personality, and they all think you're amazing. Your team inside the office thinks you're difficult. And I said, you know, I go out there and I kill myself to massage these happen to be mostly uh, developers and judges. I massage their egos. I keep our design intact. I do all these things. I come back to the office and I'd really like to let my guard down and be who I am. And I've, I'm a little annoyed that they need me to manage them as much as I manage clients. I manage clients. I am never in a room with a client just saying what I want to say, I'm thinking always five steps ahead, how the hell am I going to get them to approve what I want? <laughs> and my boss, the CEO of NBBJ, turned to me and he said, you're not married, right? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, Kate, the only person you can talk to directly and honestly with no pre-thinking about how it impacts them are your cats. <laughs> And the truth is, he was right. I needed to come back and think about the team dynamic and knowing that no project happens by yourself and believing in integrated design and knowing that lots of people were doing really valuable things on these projects. I needed to come back and decide this person doesn't like to be complimented in front of everybody, but I need to pull them aside and give them a compliment. This person requires being complimented in front of everybody, even though I think they're being a bit stuck up. Um, you know, I don't know that in this context you can just say what you want to say. And I thought I could. <laughs> and I was wrong. But you learned. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's probably why I'm succeeding better now. <laughs> Age helps. Yeah. Age helps. Age helps nicely now. I um, am blanking on the really wonderful and important woman architect in Ojai um, who was an AWA member and it was probably 20 or 30 years ago and she said she would go out and on a job site and as an older woman she was getting even less respect than she did when she went out on a job site as a younger woman. So I think ageism is still a factor, but, you know, I dye my hair, so it, you know, it takes care of that. <laughs> Obviously, I don't. <laughs> if I had your gray, I'd be happy. I, I, I felt, don't. It's patchy. This is one of those. I felt my silver hair, they thought to the building department especially, would think, oh, look at that. She's still around. <laughs> <laughs> she must know something. <laughs> I found it a benefit. <laughs> I'm newer to all, all of this, the navigating, being a partner. and This is Lee Bornstein. I guess the, the, one of those core value things is that I'm a really, really stubborn Irish person deep down. And I'm, I'm a dog with bones sometimes. And if I think it's something really important, I too believe that the story of the building is absolutely critical and if it's not there you have to give direct critic 
critical feedback to your teams. I see a lot of people in my office and in other offices are too nice. And you can deliver it nicely, but it needs to be clear. Um, I know it's very difficult <laughs> to do that. But um, the other thing is letting people succeed. Uh, I thought I had to do it all um, because I was busy proving myself. And it was a complete eye-opener the day that I couldn't get it done and I gave it to somebody else. And they did a fabulous job. And Oh, my gosh. Okay, that's great. We can do this. It's a, it's a group. It's a community. It's a village. It's, it's how you all present yourselves together and, to get it done. And, and it is. And I, too, have cats. My cats know everything. <laughs> they are my pre presentation critics as well <laughs> at night, my poor things. But um, it is, it is uh, imperative to find the way to deliver the message so it's heard and to hear the messages too because I, it's, it's a two-way street and, um, and you can't have one without the other. So. Great. Well, I think there was one more question or comment back yeah, there. Yeah. Let's make it okay. At this point, an audience member asked a question and I'm going to paraphrase here because I wasn't able to get a good recording of her speaking. In essence, her question was about work-life balance. She asked these women, because they had been so successful, how they managed to lead really full lives. Was this through relationships or side interests, travel, or things that had nothing to do with design and architecture? Well, this is Weena Dows. Back to what Brenda said about having another interest besides architecture. I did that for about 15 years. I taught a healthy cooking class. And it took every one day a week I devoted to that because I, it was a hands-on cooking class. It was really a nutrition class, but if your doctor says, don't eat so much of this or that, you don't know what to do instead. So we did it all and tasted it all. And, and guess what? I got clients out of that class. <laughs> Although I, I was rather quiet about my design part of the life, I didn't talk to the class about that, but some, kid, some people found out. So I, I have been fortunate to be married for 42 years. This is Brenda Levin. And I have a son who is spectacular and married an extraordinary woman, and I have two grandchildren. So I feel very, 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 very fortunate. Um, and I would say that David, my husband, was more than my partner. Uh, he was my biggest fan and my biggest advocate. And people always ask me why I never had a PR agent. And I said, I married one. Um, because he happened to be not not an architect, not a designer, but interested in public-private partnerships and he, planning and sustainability and green building. So I benefited from all of that. I can't minimize that at all. He really was my biggest fan, is my biggest fan to this day. And when I have those moments when you're talking to your cat or your dog or whatever of unbelievable insecurity, which I am still perfectly capable of at 72, um, I can talk to him. 
And um, so, you know, how do you, how, I chose well, and it worked. But, you know, I, the first time I chose, I didn't choose so well, and it didn't work. So, you know, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> so, uh, but, but what I will say is that allowed me to have exposure to a world that I might not have had access to on my own or felt comfortable accessing on my own. So I give them credit. So my work-life balance is, uh, this is Kate Diamond. architecture, culture. I, I, I mean, I love museums. I love art and, and limited travel because I don't, I'm not really good at taking vacations. Um, <laughs> I, I do take advantage. I travel a lot for work, and I take advantage of heading a, a long weekend in Fort Worth if I'm stuck in Texas, and Dallas doesn't interest me, but the Kimball and... All of those pieces there really do interest me. Um, I love classical music at Disney Hall and exploring cities, but I am pretty 97% tied to architecture, except for I read trashy mystery stories and, <laughs> and, and you know, I like to relax. I, believe it or not, I am actually an introvert who needs to go home to the quiet of my cats and reading a book and not talking to anyone in order to be able to get up with the energy to go face the next day. I'm an extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to be with people. This is Marisa Kurtzman. And uh, relationships have always just been the primal, the, the primary focus of my life in a way. Um, you know, it's probably not a great idea to admit this, but I, I love what I do. It stimulates me. It challenges me. Um, and I, I feel very satisfied by it. But it's always been the people um, after 6 o'clock that uh, really mean so much. Um, my family, my many friends, uh, my boyfriend. Um, and they all share their interests with me. I think there's, I think there, not only is there nothing wrong with having interests outside of architecture, I think it makes you a more interesting architect um, to have those interests. I, I also, I love to travel. Um, yeah, go do all of those things. And, you know, maybe uh, if you allow yourself to try to find a place that will uh, encourage that as well, I'm very lucky to work in a place that really, really prizes work-life balance. And now I'm a part of making sure that that continues into the next generation. Um, it's really important. So go do that. <laughs> this is Weena Dows. Uh, I guess I didn't answer the question about how did I manage kids, career, husband, all that. And sometimes my clients would say to me, oh, wow, you have three little kids. How do you manage? And I, I'd think, well, what are my alternatives? <laughs> you manage. Well, thank you so much on that <laughs> wonderful note. Uh, the the gallery is going to be open till six, so feel free to take your time to go through the space and please sign in and add your your piece to the walls. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this special episode of the XXLA Architects Podcast. I am so grateful to the amazing panelists, Nina Briggs. Kate Diamond, Brenda Levin, Marisa Kurtzman, Weena Dows, and Lise Bornstein. Special thanks to Wuho Gallery, Architects with Two X's, and the AWA Plus D, as well as event support 
from Woodbury University's Nina Briggs and Ingelil Valrus Ritter. Lastly, I thank Marisa Kurtzman and Jihei Kim for support in preparing questions, and Daniel McGilvray and Gideon Brower for tech support at the event. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. To find out more about upcoming events and episodes, you can follow me at XXLA Podcast or visit the website at xx-la.com. Thanks for listening.